uh, that's what we ought to be concerned about, our life song. Open your Bibles tonight to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and uh, it'll be a while before I get there. But uh, considering the fact that this is a review of what we've been studying for, uh, I guess, close to three months now on Wednesday evening, we started out spending several weeks talking specifically about the Lord's Supper, and then toward the end of that, the last uh, all four weeks, I would say, something like that, we've We've spoken about worship in general, and certainly the two go together. And I want to review some of the things so that it might provide instruction for uh, our observance of the Lord's Supper next week. Uh, In doing so, I want to introduce the message tonight by picking up sort of where I left off last week, especially... Uh, at the last point of the message last week. Over the last 20 years or so, uh, churches have been engaged in what some have labeled worship wars. There's even a book by that name. There's been several sermons preached by that name. And uh, I, I think it's uh, I think it's a shame that we have gotten to the point that we spend time arguing about which style of worship is the best or which style of worship is the right. But it really hit home with me last week when I was speaking about the matter of of reverence. Reverence being one of the characteristics of true worship. I mentioned last week that too many people nowadays approach the worship of the Lord in a manner that is, for lack of a better word, just plain tacky. No reverence whatsoever. And I think it's a disgrace when we give God less than our very best. Rather than demonstrating a spirit of reverence because we're in the presence of God, remember we... We talked about that. The Lord's here whether you recognize it or not. Where two or three are gathered in His name, He said, There I'll be in the midst of them. So He is here. We are in His presence. And knowing that we are in the presence of the Lord ought to make a big difference in what we do and the way that we do it. And I think the shame is in some churches you would think that instead of being in a worship service, you're in a college pep rally just before the big game, and they've turned the services, all of the services, into the vacation Bible school type of service, you know, and rather than being reverent in their worship, they want to boogie down, they want to, you know, they want to hip hop, dancing, swinging, prancing, hallelujah, hold down. That's what excites them. That's what thrills them. Now, that being said, let me tell you that when we have vacation Bible school and we get all of the kiddos up here and we get the video screen down and, you know, we've got all of the graphics and everything and the pictures and so forth, and I, that's great. That's awesome. And, and, and the children enjoy it and it's good and it's beneficial. But that doesn't mean that we ought to turn every service 
into something like that. You see, that's part of the problem. There are certain people that always want to take everything to the extreme. They never want to stay, as it were, in the middle of the road, in the point of balance and what have you. They want to go to the extreme. And that same group of people, for the most part, do not want to sing the grand old hymns of the past. And some of them will tell you that bores them. I can remember a time not that long ago when someone made a remark to someone else about our service. It happened to be on a Sunday morning, and as all of you folks know, we sing contemporary songs and we sing the grand old hymns and all of those. But on that particular morning, uh, if my memory serves me right, I think it was just all hymns maybe, just like we had committed some horrible sin. And so whenever it was all over, somebody left, and they had no idea it would get back to me, and they talked about how boring the service was. Let me tell you, there's something wrong when those hymns fail to move your heart. Whenever we we sing the old rugged cross and things like that, and that doesn't pull at your heartstrings, there's something wrong. Now, there are many wonderful contemporary songs today. And we sing, we sing the good ones, and we enjoy that. But they cannot and should not ever replace the old hymns. Let me tell you something that maybe, maybe you don't know or something you never thought about. Do you realize that if you do a study of the hymn writers, you'll discover that most of those old hymns were written by theologians and pastors and people that had gone through great suffering, people that had grown close to the Lord and knew the Lord intimately. That is a big difference between the people that are writing most of the songs today. Now, I'm not saying this as an indictment against the younger generation, but let me tell you something, there's a lot of there's a lot of kids writing songs, contemporary songs, being sung in churches. And some of them might get it right, you know, and it comes out great. But some of them don't have a clue what they're talking about. They have no real deep foundational knowledge of the Word of God. And they're just writing something that excites the flesh, something that makes them feel good. And worship is a lot more than getting excited. You can get excited at a football game. Well, maybe not the Texans, but some games you could get excited at. I just had to get that in there. Nothing wrong with getting excited. We ought to be through. We talked about that. We, we, we talked about the fact, well, I'll get to that later, maybe. I, I don't want to get completely off of the mark. But there's a lot of people today that think they're experts, and they're not. And uh, we need to be aware of that. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm saying, because we sing a lot of upbeat, fast, loud music. We clap our hands, raise our hands, and... But that doesn't mean that that's all that we should do. Loud and fast is not always better. It's not always better. There are times that it's better to have it slow and low. And 
Every song is not appropriate for every occasion. If that's all that interests you is in boogieing down, getting excited, then there's something wrong. You've got a problem and you need to examine your heart because there's more to it than that. So the last two weeks I've talked about the fact, and I've, made, I've mentioned this phrase, that there are people who worship worship. They worship worship rather than God. By that, I mean that although God might be the subject of the songs they sing, they make it all about them. In other words, they might be singing about God, but that's not their motivation for what they're doing. They do what they do for self rather than the Lord. They have no fear or no reverence of God, and it's all about making them feel good. And as long as they feel good, that's a good service. You know, if they don't get that good feeling, well, then it's not a good service. And I'm pointing that out because the Lord's Supper is the most serious act of worship that you will ever participate in. And it ought to be observed with the greatest reverence for the Lord. Now, with all of that in mind, we're just going to do an overview tonight of the material that we've covered and think about the, the points. And we don't have time to elaborate on a lot of these and to go into depth, but just so you'll have an idea, because we do not turn the, the communion service into, into a Bible study. There will be a very brief, pointed message, but the message next Sunday night will be the Lord's Supper itself. It doesn't need any embellishment from me. It says it all. So in preparation for that, as a pastor, it's my responsibility to make sure that the church is properly instructed. In our first message, we talked about the institution of the Lord's Supper. Let me uh, let me take a break here. I... I turned it on, and uh, it has lost the battery. I did turn it on. I have no idea where the battery is gone. Just keep, can you keep me on the pulpit mic there, brother? And uh, we'll get rid of this thing, and I'll stay, I'll stay glued to the podium. The institution of the Lord's Supper. What it is. What it is. I mentioned the fact that symbolism has always played an important role in the transmission of truth. You go back all through the Old Testament and you see that in the Levitical system of worship, in the Levitical priesthood and, 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 and everything there, it was all about symbols, whether it was the tabernacle or the temple or whatever it was. Every article of furniture, every piece of the building, the structure, everything about it in some way speaks about the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I mean, there was nothing there that didn't mean something. We might not know what it all means, but it all means something. And the purpose behind it was that God was using those symbols in order to teach truth. That's what the Lord's Supper does. Now, turn in your Bibles Stay there in 1 Corinthians 11, hold your place, turn over to Matthew chapter 26, and here we see when it was instituted. 
This is when the Lord's Supper was instituted. And you remember the Lord took his first church, those disciples that he had called out from all of the others, into the upper room. And it says in verse 26, And as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it and break it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink ye all of it. For this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out into the Mount of Olives. So this is when it was instituted. We talked about what it is. It's a, it's symbolism. Imparting truth. Where was it? He tells us that it's in the upper room over in the book of Mark. Who was present? Only the members of the first church. Everybody wasn't there. Now remember, there were a lot of other, other Christian people at that time. A lot of other saved people. But all of them were not present at that time. These men, and we're going to talk about this later, These men constituted the first church because 1 Corinthians 12, verse 28 says, And he set some in the church first apostles. They constituted the first church. You see, what you heard, what you heard about from the Protestants about the church starting on the day of Pentecost isn't true. The church started before the day of Pentecost. It was established during the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, well, how do you know? Well, if you turn over to Hebrews, it says he sang in the church. This is the only reference to him singing. So the church had to exist during his earthly ministry. So we know the church was in existence. And we see here who was present whenever the Lord's Supper was instituted. Now going to 1 Corinthians chapter 11... We see why it was instituted, beginning in verse number 23. Paul says to the church at Corinth, For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you. In other words, he said, I didn't make this up. I didn't get it from somewhere else. This is not what somebody told me. I'm giving you what the Lord has shown me. That the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take eat, this is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. And after the same manner also, he took the cup. And when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. So here we see why it was instituted in remembrance of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that was our message on the institution of the Lord's Supper. The next message had to do with the elements of the Lord's Supper. And we we see that very clearly there in Matthew chapter 26 and verse number 26. He speaks about the bread. He tells us that the bread represented his body that was broken. Didn't say the bones. Remember, the bones were not broken, but his body was certainly twisted, distorted, and, bo- and, and broken, and all of the joints pulled out of place. He was beaten beyond recognition. We know all of that. And so he says, the bread represents my body. 
The bread, we have every reason to believe, according to the Passover, was unleavened bread. The bread speaks of the humanity of Christ, just as the grain is crushed and, you know, and the, uh, the, the husk is removed. And, and just as it's put in the fire to make bread, even so Jesus himself was exposed to the very wrath of God for our sake. And then the fact that it was unleavened bread represents the sinlessness of the Lord Jesus Christ. The other element has to do with the fruit of the vine. And it's important that whenever we speak about this element that we use, I think, biblical language. And the only term ever used anywhere in the Bible about this element is fruit of the vine. It's, 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 it's never referred to even as wine. Now, here's what you need to understand, because this is where an argument is with a lot of preachers and a lot of churches. There are those that believe that we ought to only use fermented wine, those that believe that we ought to use unfermented wine, and those that believe it's okay if you use either one. Now, i got to tell you, I don't understand that position whatsoever. I, I've never understood that. I mean, if one is right, then that's what you ought to use. The fruit of the vine represents the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what you need to remember. That is, the word translated wine is a generic term in the sense that it means any product of the vine. In other words, it can be grape juice, grape jam, grape jelly. It's a product of the vine. And when it says fruit of the vine, listen carefully now, the fruit of the vine is what it is naturally as it comes from the vine, though. You think about that. It's it's the natural product of the vine. And i got to tell you, I've never seen anybody get drunk from drinking grape juice. Have you? Because it doesn't come off of the vine in a fermented state, not not fermented to that degree. And I know some have got the argument, you know, some have the argument, they say, oh, well, by nature it has some fermentation in it, and so we have to ferment it in order to get the fermentation out of it, that is, the impurities out of it. Well, good night, land of living, what are you saying? I mean, whenever you ferment it, then it's all fermented. So even if what even if the argument is true that it's not 100% pure the way it is coming off of the vine there's nothing about it pure after you have after you have fermented it you see so you know I'm confident the Lord knew exactly what he was doing whenever he gave us his word and he uses the phrase fruit of the vine rather than wine. I pointed out the fact that, you know, if my memory serves me right, isn't it against the law to serve alcohol to minors? And yet some churches do that, like that makes it okay. Well, I'll tell you, if it's all right to drink it here, it's all right to drink it anywhere. I've, I've seen preachers say, well, it's okay to use in the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. In fact, I had one preacher tell me, he was talking about that, that somebody had seen one of their members out here and, uh, you know, they, they were eating supper, and anyway, this fellow was out having a beer or something. I, I don't know what he was drinking. Uh, and so they called him on the carpet about it, you know, and uh, had a big to-do about it. And I thought to myself, why are you even talking about that? If it's all right for you to use it in the Lord's Supper, it's all right for him to do it in moderation. 
But my Bible says, look not on the wine when it's red, whenever it moveth the right, gives its color in the cup. Speaking about fermentation. And it's very clear. Do you think for one minute that Jesus violated any scripture in all of the Bible? Absolutely not. So whenever we talk about the element of the Lord's Supper, we're talking about the fruit of the vine and that's what we use. And if that offends somebody, you know, I, well, I'll start to say I'm sorry. No, I'm not really sorry. I, I'm just sorry in the sense that you don't understand that. And speaking about that word wine and its use in a generic sense, being the product of the vine, you have to determine by the context whether it's speaking about fermented or unfermented wine. Some people say, well, don't you realize Jesus turned water into wine? Well, sure, I've read my Bible. I mean, I'm not that dumb. I know exactly what the Bible says about that. That does not mean that it was an alcoholic beverage, though. Because there again, that word wine could refer to in any product of the grape itself. You have to determine from the context, just like interpreting anything in the Bible. You look at the context, and whenever you do, you can tell whether it has reference to uh, fermented uh, wine or unfermented wine. So we talked about that a bit longer than we're doing tonight. Maybe you're here and you maybe you're thinking, well, I still don't agree with you. Well, why wouldn't you hear the night we talked about it then? Because we went into a lot more detail. Then we talked about the purpose of the Lord's Supper. We see that here in 1 Corinthians 11. Look, at, if you would, at verse number 25. And there are four things I want to point out here in this chapter concerning the purpose of it. First of all, there's the matter of responsibility. He says in verse 25, This do ye. This do ye. Several years ago, we were getting ready to observe the Lord's Supper, and one of the women of the church came to me after the service uh, that morning and said, uh, Brother Stone said, uh, I know we've got the Lord's Supper scheduled. I just wanted to let you know ahead of time I'm not going to be here. I'm not going to. I'm not, you know, I'm, I just, there's some things, you know, that I, uh, I, I'm just not going to do it. I just don't feel comfortable doing it. Now, now, let me ask you, is that the solution to the problem? To say, well, you know, I've got some sin in my life, and so I'm just going to skip out on this. Let me tell you what the solution is. The solution is to confess that sin, get your heart right with God, and be there. That's the solution. This do ye. That's what he says. There's a responsibility attached to this. But then we see in verse 24 and verse 25, not only the responsibility, but we see here the purpose is also that of a reminder. He says, in remembrance of me. A memorial honors great lives. A memorial recalls great deeds. A memorial provides instructions. We talked about the fact, you know, the stones that they are erected in the crossing of the Jordan over in the Old Testament. And the Lord told them very clearly that the purpose of that was so the other generations would ask questions and understand. And memorials provide instruction. But the fourth thing is memorials, memorials also produce inspiration. And I'll tell you, there's nothing more inspirational than the Lord's Supper when you realize there that you are taken into your body that which represents the broken body and the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The inspiration. Look, 
worship ought to be inspirational. And if that doesn't move your heart, there's something wrong. To think about Him loving you so much that He allowed Himself to be tortured and suffered to such a great extent that the sin of the world was placed upon Him. So, there's the responsibility, there is the reminder, and also look in verse 26, the third thing about the purpose is the revelation. He says, ye do show the Lord's death. In other words, this ordinance provides a revelation. You are showing the Lord's death. And then notice this also, the reassurance, till He come. Till He come. That's a reassuring thought, is it not? To know that He's going to come and He's going to make everything right. After that, we talked about the proper observance of the Lord's Supper. And we made our study from this chapter. We talked about the when factor. When do we observe the Lord's Supper? And and as as you examine the Bible, you discover that the Bible does not tell us how often, nor does the Bible set any particular date. It doesn't say you're to do this on the first Sunday of every month or the you know, the uh, quarterly or there's no date set at all. What it does tell us, as off as ye drink it in remembrance of me. That's when we're to do it. When we do it in remembrance of him. And one of the one of the pitfalls, I think, in observing the Lord's Supper every Sunday. And, and I'm not saying a church can't do that. Why? Sure they can. There's nothing sinful, nothing wrong, nothing unscriptural about doing that. Unless... It becomes just, you know, part of the ritual that you, they go through, and it degenerates into just some religious ritualism, and nobody puts any real thought in it. And, and the important factor is that we do it in remembrance of Him. That's why we don't have a set time. We don't do it necessarily monthly or quarterly or whatever. We just do it whenever... Whenever I, as the pastor, feel like that this is the time to do it. And I might add this, and only, you know, only a pastor could possibly have any idea of what I'm about to talk about and mention now. Many years ago, I preached a series of messages on, on Satan. You cannot believe the things that happened. I mean, it was beyond belief. As a young preacher, it's nearly 50 years ago. And i got to tell you, I wasn't ready for it. I had no idea that was going to happen. But I've discovered ever since that time that it always does when you get on that subject. I've also discovered that every time you set a time for the Lord's Supper and you plan to observe it, up jumps the devil. Up jumps the devil. And things start happening. Because he is going to do everything he can to disrupt and hinder that service. So, when do we do it? Well, we do it in remembrance of him, but also we do it when there is unity in the church. Look in verse number 18 for just a moment. He says, for first of all, when you come together in the church, I hear that there be divisions among you, and I partly believe it. For there must be also heresies among you, that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. When you come together, therefore, into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. 
In other words, he is telling them flat out here that you cannot properly observe the Lord's Supper when there are these divisions in the church. So this has to be done at a time when there's unity in the church. Well, that brings up the next question about the proper observance, not only the when, but the where. And if we're going to let the Bible be our guide, we have to... We have to come to the conclusion that we observe the Lord's Supper when the church is assembled. Remember this. This is a church ordinance. It's not something we do individually. It's not something that we do privately. We don't take the Lord's Supper to the hospital or the nursing home. This is something that is a corporate act of worship on the part of the church. It is a ordinance concerning the Lord's church. And every example we have in the Bible has the church observing the ordinance, not not some individual, you see. I mean, I've read about some of these. Uh, uh, you've heard me talk about Pat Boone baptizing people in Hired Johnson's swimming pool whenever he would have one of his crusades uh, a bunch of years ago, and he was doing that. And, of course, there have been those that have supposedly observed the Lord's Supper. They go on a cruise and... You know, and so come on the cruise with us. We're going to be observing the Lord's Supper. They go to the Holy Land and they're going to observe the Lord's Supper. Now, now you can observe the Lord's Supper in the Holy Land. Jesus did. Doesn't make any difference whether you're there, here, or where you are. But the church, the church body needs to be assembled whenever it happens because it is a church ordinance. That brings us down to the who. Now, I want you to listen very carefully to this part because there is a lot of confusion about it. An old Southern Baptist preacher by the name of J.W. Porter many years ago, he's been dead a lot of years now, but he made a statement that really hit the nail on the head. Here's what he said in this regards. All agree that the supper is a restricted ordinance. The only question that can arise in this connection is to the nature and number of the restrictions. So, you know, there are some that really get angry with us because of what we believe about this, but even they put some restrictions on it. Right? I mean, I don't care if you're talking about the Catholics, the Methodists, or the Presbyterian, or whoever it is. They might say, oh, well, we believe in, you know, open communion, all of, all of the people. But yet they turn right around and some would say, but you've got to be a member of our denomination or you've got to at least profess to be a Christian. Now, there are three major views in this regards. There is that which is known as open communion. That means that it's open to anybody, anybody that professes to be a Christian. There's a matter of what is called then close communion. That means that, that it requires more than just being a Christian. You've got to be of the same particular denomination. In other words, if the church is Methodist, you've got to be a member of a Methodist church somewhere. If we're talking about Baptist, then you've got to be a member of another Baptist church somewhere, or, or you can't observe the Lord's Supper with that particular church. The third is closed communion. And that's what we believe. We believe that's what the Bible teaches. And I say that because it is restricted to the members of the church that is administering the ordinance. Now, now this, this, is, this is why this is important. The Bible gives us 
guidelines to establish the restrictions. In other words, we're not going by just what we feel would be the best way to do it. We've got to go according to what the Bible says. And, and over in Hebrews, I think it's chapter number 8, where he's referring to Moses building the tabernacle. And God said to Moses, See thou build all things according to the pattern shown thee in the mount. And we talked about the fact that that tabernacle had to be built to the exact specifications that God prescribed. The length, the height, the material, everything about it. God said, this is the way that I want it to be done. So whenever you and I come to observe the Lord's Supper, we need to find out how it was observed in the New Testament, right? Because that's our guidebook. That's the pattern that we're to follow. And we have no more right to deviate from that pattern than Moses would have had to deviate from the pattern that God showed him in the mount. You know, Moses could have said, well, I think the fence ought to be higher, or I think we ought to use a different kind of material or something. Well, that wouldn't fly with God, and it doesn't fly with God when we go to changing things. So when we look at the Bible, we see that the participants must be members of the church that are observing the ordinance. Every example shows that those that participated in the Lord's Supper had trusted Jesus Christ as their Savior and that they were baptized. Now, it'll help you to understand this, that every church is independent. And I know a lot of people, you know, they don't want to use that name in, in reference to their church. I mean, we have the Baptist Bible Fellowship, we got the ABA, we got the BMA, and we got the Southern Baptist, and we, oh my, the list goes on and on. We got the Northern Baptist, everything under the sun. So somebody, you know, quite often will ask us, what kind of Baptist are you? And I just say, we are independent Baptists. We're just Baptists. And, and some people, oh, I've never heard of a Baptist like that. Well, did you realize there was a time when all Baptist churches were like that? There didn't exist any such thing as a convention, a fellowship, and an association. None of those existed. All of those are man-made. Churches ought to be independent of all other churches, and churches are responsible to govern her own affairs as God directs. No other church has a right to tell this church what it's going to do. No other church has a right to influence us. Somebody says, oh, the, 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 you know, the president of the association is going to be in town next week and he wants to come by. Well, he's not coming by here. I mean, I'm under no obligation to him. I don't, I don't vote for anybody to be the president of anything other than the president of the union. I better get off of that, but, uh, <laughs> just to clarify things, I didn't vote for this one, but, uh, I don't know how I got that on that subject. Here's the point. All churches are independent. All churches are responsible to follow the leadership of the Lord in what they do. And only, listen carefully, only the church that you are a member of has the authority to discipline you. So when we talk about observing the Lord's Supper, let's say we're going to observe the Lord's Supper tonight. And so let's say... Let's say here comes 15 folks from First Baptist or whatever, pick a church. I, I'm not picking on them, and they happen to be here. And they say, you know, well, you know, we, we, we want to we join in, and uh, we want to participate in the Lord's Supper with you. 
Now, I'm certainly not going to be rude to them, and I'm going to, and I'm going to say this publicly. I'm not going back there and, like Spurgeon did, and some of the old-timey preachers literally slapped the communion cup out of their hand for various reasons. I'm not going to do that. They're going to have to answer to God for that, but I'm going to make it clear that this is a local church ordinance. We don't know anything about those people. We don't know anything about their lifestyle. We have no authority over them. Now, maybe you thought, well, gee, I, did, I, did, I, did, I had somebody tell me what I do is my business. It's not, not the church's business what I do. That's where you're wrong. Because according to Matthew chapter number 18, and the Lord there is instructing that first church, and He gave them the authority to discipline its own members. And the Bible speaks about that in several different places, that we have that responsibility. When people are unruly, when people are living in sin and refuse to repent of it, and they're living a life of rebellion, we have a responsibility as a church to exercise discipline against those members. Not because we're angry at them, not because we want to get rid of them, but because we want to wake them up. We want to help them to understand this is not acceptable in the sight of God and it's not going to fly here and you're not going to be a voting member of this church and live in a lifestyle like that. Now, if we don't have the authority to exercise discipline over someone... Whenever it comes time for the Lord's Supper, then they have no right to participate in the Lord's Supper. Let me ask you another question. What in God's name are they doing here in this church when they ought to be in their own church observing the Lord's Supper? I want to tell you, if I hear some of you folks are out here in one of the other Baptist churches around here observing the Lord's Supper, you're going to get a knock on the door or a phone call. I want you to know I'm not happy about that. You have no business being over there observing the Lord's Supper with them. And, and, I mean, that's their business. They have no authority over you as a member. And you ought to be here. So it is a local church ordinance to be observed when the church is assembled by the members of that church. What happened at the church at Corinth is that they had turned this into what we would call a fellowship supper. And the Apostle Paul, uh, he said, why? Some of you are already drunken, and by the word, that word drunken there does not mean they were inebriated. It's not talking about intoxication at all. If you'll do a word study, you'll see it simply means to be filled to the full. Just like they had stuffed their gut eating, they had drunk, drank till they, whatever it is, until they couldn't drink anymore. That's the point. They didn't wait for the others even to show up. They didn't care. There was a division in the church. And he told them, he said, look, you cannot observe the Lord's Supper in this condition. Now, one last thing. And that is the participants not only must be a member of the church that is administering the ordinance, but every person that participates in observing the Lord's Supper is responsible to examine themselves. Look in verse 27. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily. Don't misunderstand that. Somebody said, oh, I'm so unworthy. That's not what he's talking about there. When he says unworthily, he's talking about the manner in which we observe the Lord's Supper in a way that is unbecoming, a way that's not in accordance to God's Word. So he says, whoever... 
eats the bread and drinks the cup unworthily shall be guilty of the body and of the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. that They're dead. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord that we should not be condemned with the world. And wherefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, tarry one for another. Wait till everybody gets there. For if any man hunger, let him eat at home. That you come not together unto condemnation, and the rest will I set in order when I come. If you know anything about the Apostle Paul, you know he meant what he said. And I'll tell you, whenever he got there, it was going to be Katie barred the door. Because he was going to tell them how the calf ate the cabbage. I mean, he wasn't going to pull any punches. He was going to get right down, right down to business when he got there. I love the way he said that. I'm going to set it in order. You'll remember when he was writing to Titus and told Titus to stay in Crete. What did he, what did he do? He said, I want you to stay there and set things in order. Things have gotten out of order. I want you to set things in order. And here, this is a church that is out of order. And he's telling them, before they observe the Lord's Supper, they are to examine themselves. Because partaking of the Lord's table in an unworthily fashion is a dangerous thing to do. It can cause weakness. It can cause sickness. It can even cause death. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you believe that? I mean, that's what the Bible says. You see it for yourself, right? But do you really believe that? I want to tell you what. If, if God told me, if you walk through that, that door out there, you're, you're, you're going to become physically weak or you're going to get sick or I might even kill you, I'm going to go out that door. I'm not going through that door, right? Now, this is a warning to us, folks, and it's so very important that we listen to this warning. And if we really believe this, we will. And here's the thing about it. We're to examine ourselves personally. We are so prone to examine somebody else. You know, a husband, the wife, or the wife, the husband. I can't believe that dirty rat's going to observe the Lord's Supper after the way he talked to me at home. You know, and here she's sitting there judging him or, you know, it, it doesn't have to be a husband and wife. It can be the children and the parents or whatever. But we're also prone to, you know, look around and say, oh, I can't, I can't believe they're going to do that, you know. Don't you worry about them. Amen. You say, oh, yeah, but it's wrong what they're doing. Well, it might be, but God's able to take care of his children. God will take care of his business. He doesn't need our help in that regards. He says, examine yourself. This ought to be a personal thing that we do. Between now and then, every one of us personally need to examine our life personally and carefully. Carefully. You you see, it's real easy for us to just gloss over some things. It's real easy to say, well, I've examined my life and my Sunday school attendance has been super. I haven't missed a Sunday so far this year. I'm doing good in that tithe. 
haven't missed any tithe checks, you know, all year long. I'm, I'm doing good there. Uh, Bible reading, well, not, not, too, not too bad. Uh, nearly every day I manage to get the Bible out, or, or if I don't, I read morning manna or something, you know, so I'm not too bad there. And we don't even deal with a lot of stuff. And I'm saying when we examine ourselves, we need to do it carefully. I mean, we need to get down to the nitty-gritty, as the old-timers would say, and look deep within our hearts and, and, and examine our lives. And to do that, by the way, listen, to do that, the only way you can really do it accurately is to examine your life in the light of God's Word. Remember that song based on the psalm? Search me, O God, and know my heart today. That, that ought to be our prayer. Lord, show me if there be any wicked way in me. So this judgment needs to be personal, it needs to be careful, and it needs to be honest. Really, really difficult sometimes to be honest about our spiritual condition. I don't know who we think we're fooling because God knows the facts, right? And you see, it's easy for us to deceive ourselves. Remember, Paul said to, to, to this same church, actually, if I remember right, about warned them about comparing oneself against others. Don't compare yourself one against the other. That's a big mistake. You might look around and compare yourself to me or anybody else here and say, well, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, sure, I'm sure doing better than they are, you know. Well, you might be, but that doesn't mean you're right. We can all be wrong. We need to be honest about our condition. I mean, I've known people, in fact, not only have I known people, I've been guilty of this very thing. Having some, some shortcoming in my life that was obvious to just about everybody else that really knew me except me. I'm the only one that didn't see it. I was talking to Brother Kenneth today, and we were talking about back, uh, I was talking back whenever I first started preaching a whole long time ago and some of the silly mistakes I made and what have you. Everybody else could see my shortcomings but me. I, I couldn't see it. I, I thought I was right on track. And I, was, I was the one that's really wrong. It's hard to be honest about yourself. But whenever you take into consideration the warning that's been given here, folks, we better be honest and we better be careful and we better keep it personal. If there's any sin in your life, any bitterness in your heart, any malice toward others, any spirit of unforgiveness toward someone, you need to deal with that. Whether you do it here tonight, whether you do it when you get home, whatever you do before you come to the Lord's table, you need to get on your knees and you need to take care of business and ask God to forgive you. I've known people that have lived for years and years. This morning, we talked about the future of failure. And we talked about the fact that many people have lived in misery for years and years because they've never learned how to get past the past. They're hung up way back there somewhere. And so many times it's due to something bad that happened, and they're still bitter about it. They're still angry about it. They still hold it against somebody. And, you know, if you try to encourage them, they think you're minimizing the offense. You just don't understand. How dare you say I ought to forget about it and move on, you know. And they, they resent you trying to intervene and help them get past the past. You'd be surprised how many people have bitterness towards somebody in their heart. 
And I'm simply saying, get rid of it. The Bible talks about don't let any root of bitterness springing up trouble you and defile you and trouble others. Bitterness is a troublemaker. Bitterness is a killer. Whatever you do, get rid of it. Whatever you've got to do, get rid of it. If that means going to someone and asking their forgiveness, if it's going to someone and, and you saying, I forgive you, whatever you do, you need to make sure that your heart is pure before the Lord when you come to the Lord's table. Most of all, I want you to be praying. Praying that through this service next Sunday night, that when we leave here, Every one of us will leave with the feeling that God is more wonderful, that He is greater and better than our mind could ever imagine. Because that is our sole purpose, to glorify Him. And if we don't do that, we fail altogether. Let a man examine himself. Let's stand together. Father... We thank You, dear Lord, for the instruction that You've given us. We thank You, Heavenly Father, for the ordinance of the Lord's Supper and what it means. And I pray that You'll help us to approach Your table in such a manner that will be pleasing in Your sight. Heavenly Father, how we thank You for the shed blood. How we thank You for the broken body of Your own dear Son. And to think that He did it all for us. He died in our place. Became our substitute. He became a son of man that we might become the children of God. And we're so thankful to know that we can have a personal relationship with You. And Lord, I pray that we will confess every known sin, tear down every known barrier in our heart and in our life, that whenever we come to the Lord's table, that we'll come with a pure heart, with a clear conscience. And Lord, help us to do that, not only as we observe the Lord's Supper, may that, may that be our attitude every single day that we live. We know that you command us to be holy because you're holy, and we can't do it without your help. Help us. Help us here tonight to examine ourselves and to be careful and honest about it. In Jesus' name we pray. As we